the book of Zechariah, some count it as in all the prophet books of the Old Testament, if not the most important, definitely uh, within the top two or three. And I would agree with that. However, we are in a portion of the scriptures that is not something you can just thumb through and read. It has to be studied. And in 2 Timothy 2.15, he tells us as believers, as ministers, every one of us are, that we are to study the Word of God. And so, when we come to Zechariah here, you say, well, I'm ready to study, you know, basic math. Well, that's not what we're doing. We're, you know, into Algebra 2, maybe even trigonometry here, before we get out of Zechariah. And, uh, you know, Revelation being calculus. Uh, this isn't easygoing stuff. So you've got to put on your thinking caps this morning. And those of you who have been through course, through course, especially going through Isaiah and Jeremiah, as well as the book of Daniel, for sure the book of Daniel with us, a lot of this is just going to be pieces of information you've already had, and you're going to go, oh yeah, I know exactly where that goes. And some of you are going to go, now what is that trigonometry equation again? And what are you talking about? And it's basically, go back and study Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel, and you'll understand it. And you're going, isn't that going to take a long time? Yeah, yeah, it is. And so again, Glean what you can from it, but don't turn off and say, well, this is above me. I'm still back on basic math. Don't turn it off. You'll pick up enough of the information. It will help you the next pass at whether this scripture or the other prophetic scriptures. And so I want to just tell you up front that the next couple of weeks is going to be a little bit tough. Uh, but the insights for everybody, even if you're a newcomer into Christianity, is going to be astounding. Well, with that being said, we come now to the third portion of Zechariah, the first being the first six chapters, the eight visions. And then last week, the question, uh, radical time, seven and eight. Boy, still chewing on that. Uh, the question they have, do we still need to keep the ceremonial fast that we had? And now we come to the last portion, chapter nine through 14, about the Messiah, the Antichrist, the coming of the Lord. A lot of very powerful scriptures you hear on a regular basis come out of this next portion of scripture. And today we're going to look at chapters 9 and 10. And most believe between chapters 8 and 9 was a long period of time. Matter of fact, uh, the very writing structure of chapters 9 through 14 uh, is very different. And so most believe at this point now, Zechariah is a very old man. Maybe now as far as it's 480 B.C. when he's now writing this. Uh, he's up in his later years, and he writes here, the burden of the word of the Lord. This is an unusual word, only used three times in the uh, Old Testament. In chapter 12, verse 1, it's going to be used again, but then also we're going to see it when we get to Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. And it means uh, there's a compulsion, there's an urgency, there's a drive. It's heavy, but I've, I've got to push this message out. I've got to get it out. And that's such an important concept for where we're at today. It's going to be heavy, but it's urgent that we hear uh, these prophetic scriptures. That's very much the very time we live in. So this is that burden of the word of the Lord. Now, it's against the land of Hadrach, which is northern Syria today. Uh, the modern name of that city today is Tel Aphis. Tel, it's like a mound, a hill, and Aphis, A-F-I-S about 28 miles southwest of 
Aleppo in uh, Syria today. And uh, so let's start up, at, we're going to see as we start chapter 9, it starts up in the north and works its way down south. So Ad, uh, Hadrach is the highest northern part. And uh, then Damascus, its resting place, goes inland a little bit there. And uh, Damascus is there today, the ancient site. For the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. Now this, its resting place, or for the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. It actually can be translated either way. It's the eyes of the men and the tribes of Israel are on the Lord, or it can switch. It can actually be translated, the eyes of the Lord are on all men as on Israel. And I think that's the best translation here. And what it's saying here, because if you look in context, it's saying, as my eyes were on Israel concerning its judgment. Remember, they had just come out of a 70-year uh, captivity period by the Babylonians. And so God brought judgment upon them on the northern, first by Assyria, then the southern Judah by Babylon. He's saying, the rest of the world isn't going to escape my judgment either. If my eyes are on Israel, and the Bible says judgment first comes to the house of the Lord, well then it's, judgment's also going to come to the rest of the world. So as my eyes, referring to his judgment, was on Israel, so my eyes are going to be on the rest of the world. And then he goes on to say, also against Hamath, now this is southern Syria, almost to Lebanon, not quite. And it's today uh, the modern Syria of Hamath there in Syria, which borders on it, and against Tyre and Sidon. Sidon is in Lebanon. Uh, 20 miles on down the coast, uh, a little farther, is Tyre, which is just right there at the peak. It's actually inside Israel today. And uh, though they are very wise, very skillful, how were they skillful? Uh, these are the Phoenician people, the Tyre and Sidon Phoenician were known as the Phoenicians, and they were uh, the ones really who controlled the seas for centuries. They had the navel uh, that nobody else had. And uh, then it says in, in verse 3, For Tyre built herself a tower, or a uh, better translation there, a stronghold. In other words, a, a strong position heaped up with silver like the dust and gold like the mire of the streets. At their time, at their peak, they were hands down the wealthiest country in the world uh, for a season. But behold, the Lord will cast her out he will destroy her in the sea. Notice that. And she will be devoured by fire. Now, we went into detail in this as we studied in Isaiah 23. We studied it again um, when we came. Uh, well, actually, we're going to be doing it again when we come to um, Ezekiel there in uh, chapter 26. And also we talked about in detail in Daniel. But... Um, and, and especially in Ezekiel, some very, very detailed uh, accounts of how this humongous, uh, powerful country of Tyre would be brought down to nothing with incredible description, a case-by-case -case blow hundreds of years before it happened of how it would be destroyed. And I'm not going to go into all of that, but in short, um, first of all, the Syrians came and attacked it, and after about a five-year siege, took over Tyre, and this was in 722 B.C. They learned from that. The next time around, Nebuchadnezzar came in 572 uh, with the Babylonians, and they had for 13 years had a siege against Tyre. But what Tyre did is about a half a mile, almost a half a mile out from shore, there was an island. And so why Nebuchadnezzar had a siege against them, and the uh, Babylonians did not have a navy, 
they simply took the entire country and moved it to the island and they built 150 feet high walls all the way around the island and uh, they were secure. And so after 13 years, Nebuchadnezzar finally broke in and everybody and everything was gone. He got so angry, he just tore the whole thing down, uh, the, the ancient site of Tyre. Now, as you study out the prophecy, it says it would be tore down, it would be made like a table, and it would never be uh, built upon again, even though today there is a water source on the ancient site of Tyre that uh, could sustain a city of about 300,000 people. But what um, happened years and years later, when the Grecian Empire now came, there, that, so you got the Babylonian Empire, then the Persian Empire, then the Grecian Empire uh, that conquered the world, Alexander the Great came, and he wanted to conquer Tyre. And actually what he did is he just got a massive amount of slaves and took the rubble of the ancient site of Tyre, threw it into the ocean, and in that half a mile, almost half a mile, he just built a causeway and marched right over and conquered it. And the Bible said that the ancient site would not be built on. To this day, it's not built on. And it said that um, the only thing you would see there is it's flat like a table and that fishermen would put their nets upon the rocks there to dry them out and to fix them. You go to the ancient site of Tyre today, that's exactly what you see to this very day. And so here he's talking about that utter destruction that came, and then uh, he did burn it with fire. And so today it looks like a little peninsula outside of Tyre, but it once was an island at one time. And then he goes on and talks about how the path that Alexander the Great took as he went on conquering, moving south through the Philistine land. Ashkelon shall see it in fear. Uh, Gaza also shall be very sorrowful. So when they s knew about the destruction of Tyre, they knew they were history. Man, when they saw this incredible feat of how he built in the ocean a half a mile out a causeway to get to the they realized, we're doomed. And Ekron, all three of these Philistine cities, for he dried up her expectation. Now the king shall perish from Gaza. Actually, Alexander hooked the feet of the king to a chariot and dragged him around the city until he died. And then Ashkelon shall be not be inhabited. And so these ancient sites, uh, the Philistines were gone as a people group to this day. They're no longer in existence. And um, these sites, again, were completely destroyed. And in verse 6, it says, A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod. Why? Because the Greeks would intermarry with those that were there and make sort of a, uh, a new people, if you would. And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take away the blood from its mouth. The pagan religions of the Philistines was very brutal. Remember Dagon they worshipped. Their god was, uh, the upper torso was a man, the bottom torso was a fish, the fish god they worshipped, but he required an infant sacrifice. Also eat drinking blood and eating things with blood in it. And those things are going to be, those abominable things are going to be gone from between his teeth. But he who remains, referring to Alexander the Great, even he shall be for our God and shall be like a leader in Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite. Now this is very interesting. Alexander, when he came down south along the coastlands conquering the Philistines, he didn't come over as he would have like he did when he came 
um, from Hamath down to Damascus and then came back over to Tyre and Sidon, it would have made sense. That was sort of the trail he was taking. He didn't do that. He went on to Egypt and conquered Egypt. So he passed by Jerusalem. They thought for sure they were going to have a conflict. They didn't. They, he went on up to Egypt. And then after he conquered Egypt, he started to come back down and to conquer Jerusalem. But Josephus has some writings upon this, and he tells us that Alexander had a horrible nightmare, and God basically warned him in that dream, don't touch Israel, they're my blessed people. So when Alexander showed up, the people of God also were spoken to, saying, receive him. And so they actually, uh, the people dressed in white robes and the priest, and they received him. Alexander brought um, animals up, asked the priest to sacrifice and pray for him, and actually put the, their blessings uh, upon Alexander and Alexander upon them. And so he was sort of like a Jebusite. Now remember who the Jebusites were. Those were the people who used to live in Jerusalem. When David conquered Jerusalem and made Jerusalem the headquarters for the, the Israeli people, some of the Jebusites were God-fearing people, and so they were allowed to remain living in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, if you remember when David went and bought the hill above him, where the temple was eventually built, it was owned by a Jebusite, and the Jebusite said, David, anything you want, it's yours, you're my king. And, and they, were, they, were, they sort of became like Jews. Solomon uh, used them, and they were key people in building the temple. And he's saying that that's sort of the way Alexander the Great, he's going to be sort of adopted in like a, a Jebusite within the land, moreover, where the uh, Philistines had lived, but nevertheless, in the land, he's going to sort of be like that. And this is also, however, notice it says, um, he shall be like a leader in Judah. Like who? Now, as we get over to verse 9, the question's going to be over. He's talking about Jesus Christ. He's a picture in a sense. How? Here comes Alexander the Great, and if you look at your history, at 20 years old, his father died, he became king, he began to conquer the world. Um, right after this, a very short time after this, he finished conquering the world. But at this point, he is in his early 30s. He's coming to Jerusalem. How is he coming? As a conquering king. The people of Israel, as he comes to the eastern gate, they are praising him as we accept you, we, we realize who you are, you're the conquering king, and, and they showed homage and submission and threw a parade for him, basically. Well, there'd be another who had that, that same picture, and that's going to be Jesus Christ. We're going to look at that in a minute. But notice what he says in verse 8. I will camp around my house because of the army, referring to Alexander the Great's army, because of him who passes by him, remember first he went down to Egypt, but then him who returns. So then as he came back from Egypt as, as well, God says, I'm camping around you, I'm going to protect you. So the children of Israel had this prophecy of Zechariah before the event took place. And he, now the second part, verse 8, remember chapters and verses, the prophets didn't write verse 8. <laughs> That was added much later. Um, and so in the middle of verse 8 really begins a new thought. And, and so the second part, So no more shall an oppressor pass through them, for now I have seen with my eyes. Or God is saying, I am God that am watching. 
So God is saying there's a point that never again will Israel be oppressed. When will that be? Verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly riding on a donkey, a colt, and the foal of a donkey. Now here's something very important that you have to understand about prophecy. And again, those who have been studying with us, you already understand this. There is often dual fulfillment within the scripture. We showed you one in Isaiah, for example, when we were looking and comparing it to Luke chapter 4, where Jesus opened the scriptures and read out of Isaiah 61 about opening the prison doors and opening the eyes of the blind and setting the captives free. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the sentence, he stops. He doesn't even finish the Hebrew sentence. Because if you read in Isaiah 61, the second part of that sentence is, and he brings the day of the vengeance of my God. But he doesn't read that part. He stops in the middle of the sentence. He closes the scroll. He says, today this is fulfilled in your presence. Well, hold it. What about that last part? And the day of the vengeance of our God. That isn't going to happen until the second coming of Christ when once again he's going to come, set the captives free, once again open the blind eyes, once again. But in that time, he will also bring vengeance. Well, in the same way, you say, hey, Brian, I know this verse. This verse is in Matthew. This is, this is Jesus when he came riding in on a colt. You know, you're almost right. Let's look at that in Matthew 21. And you'll see exactly what I mean in this dual fulfillment. <clears throat> in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter, or excuse me, Matthew. We're going to look at Luke here too. But Matthew chapter 21, starting there in verse 1. Now, you guys remember that story, many of you. Matthew 21, verse 1. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethage, the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me, and if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of him, and immediately he shall send them. Don't, don't try this over at Kmart or something and walk out the door. <clears throat> Won't work. Only work for Jesus. And in verse 4, he says, All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet, saying, Now listen, tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, setting on donkey, a colt, and the foal of a donkey. Now I need to stop right there. We're going to finish that, Matthew, in a minute. But notice what was left out. Go ahead, hold it. Hold your finger there and look back over at Zechariah 9. 9, and look at what was left out. He left out that middle sentence he is just and having salvation why did he leave that out because in part in the first coming of Christ this was fulfilled this portion the king our king did come to us and he was lowly Jesus came as a humble carpenter in Nazareth he was a Humble person, anybody, no matter how poor, no matter how outcast in the society you might have been, you would have felt comfortable approaching Jesus and talking to Jesus. He was the biggest nobody uh, in Israel. But yet, at the same time, he was the king. He was lowly. And, again, the colt, the foal of a donkey, one that had never been ridden on, this, again, was the way they did it in those days. 
uh, you, you can look through many ancient accounts. When kings had a victory, they would ride upon a donkey, usually a white one, and one that had never been ridden on before. That was their, um, you know, Rolls Royce of the day. And uh, they came riding in on that. And this is exactly what Jesus did in that scene. But in his first coming, he was not just. In other words, he didn't bring judgment. Right now, God has not judged anyone. Right now, everybody is open and free for salvation if they'll come unto Jesus. They'll find that all they have to do is confess their sin. I am a sinner. I have sinned against God. I have sinned against man. I need to repent and turn around 180 degrees and start following you, Jesus, and walking as you would have me walk, and immediately you'll find forgiveness. You won't find justice. You'll find forgiveness. You'll find that immediately he wipes away your old sins and gives you a brand new start and having salvation. He said, hold it, didn't Jesus bring salvation? Yes and no. Yes, he brought salvation as Jesus said in Matthew, the kingdom of God is within you. Yes, in our spirits he took away our sins and all the old things have passed away and all things have become new within us. Outwardly, no. We don't, we're not in an earth that's saved. We're not in a place where being a Christian is even an advantage to you in this world. It's a disadvantage to you to be a Christian. Because Satan, the God of this world, and the world and its philosophical mindset is, is absolutely opposite of a Christian mindset. And so for us to live the Christian life, we've got to deny ourselves, take up a cross. We have to lose our life. We have to die to ourselves in this world. We have to lose out in this world now. But there is going to come a day when Jesus is going to come like this king, and he is going to be just. He's going to bring judgment. We're going to see it when we get to Zechariah 14. He's going to land on the Mount of Olives. The earth is going to split open. There's going to be a river from the Dead Sea to the ocean. And there he's going to first bring the nations. He's going to judge all the nations on how they treated Israel. And then after that, he's going to judge individual people. You can read it about at the very end of the book of Daniel. There's a some time period, about 45 days there, where the Lord finishes up that business. He's going to be just. There's going to be no mercy. There's going to only be pure, exact equity and justice and judgment for every eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Every sin is going to be accounted for, even to the tiniest sin, to the largest of sins, to every sin. And men will be damned in eternal damnation that aren't right with God. And then he will bring salvation to the earth. The whole earth will be renewed in a millennial reign. And we will be saved, not just inwardly, all things have become new, but outwardly all things will have become new. So you say, then why do we say we're saved? Because we believe that he who began the good work is what? He's going to finish it. So we, we say it by faith. It's a done deal. So when you look in the mirror and you say, you don't look very saved. Well, you're right, because it hasn't happened on the outside yet. But it has happened. You can go ahead and say it by faith. You don't look it, but you are, by faith, inside and out, he is going to bring that entire salvation package when he comes again. Now, there in, in Matthew, <coughs> finishing up that passage, and then we're going to look at a very important passage in, in Revelation, 
But in, in Matthew, so the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, brought the donkey and the colt and laid the clothes on them, set him on them. Very great multitudes spread their clothes on the road. In the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 12 through 19, it mentions they also brought palm leaves out. So thus we have what we call Palm Sunday. And the multitudes who went before them and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth. Now in Luke chapter 19, verse 28 through 46, the same exact passage, they come up to Jesus and they rebuke him. They're saying, Hey, they're quoting Matthew 118. That's the Messianic passage. Rebuke him for that. That's, that passage is only for the Messiah. And Jesus said, if I asked them to stop, the rocks would start crying out. You would have a rock concert that wouldn't stop. There's no way. But then Jesus, he went and he prayed. And this is radical. In the Gospel of Luke 19, he prayed this prayer. And he said, because you did not know this your day. Therefore, and then he describes 70 A.D., the destruction of Jerusalem that would come. This your day. What is he talking about? Back in Daniel, chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, the 70 weeks of Daniel. And again, I can't go into all the teaching on this. There's another prophetic formula. You're saying, what are you talking about? We've got to go back and uh, you can grab those tapes, listen to it on the Internet. But in that passage... The Lord says, from the decree given to start rebuilding Israel, which Artaxerxes gave March 14th, 445 B.C. There's two groups of seven, a seven weeks, seven times seven. Then there's another 62 sevens. That adds up to 483 years, using the Babylonian calendar of 360-day years, plus adding some leap years in, take another leap year out because every 100 years you miss out on a leap year. You can go through it. There's books that talk about it. You end up with 173,880 days. So if you look and say from March 14th, 445 B.C., at 173,880 days, where does it come? It comes to April 6, 32 A.D., the very same day Jesus came riding in upon this donkey, which is radical. And he says, you didn't know this your day. And therefore, this destruction is going to come. What's the very next thing Jesus does? He goes down and for the sixth, second time, he cleanses the temple, turns over the money, changes tables, and says, my house is a house of prayer. And then shortly thereafter, he is crucified. Now, there is another, the one he's talking about here. Remember the end of verse 8? No more oppression is ever going to happen to Israel ever again. He's going to make sure it doesn't happen. Then he re reads verse 9. What is verse 9? We find this actually in Revelation chapter 7. Turn over there with me. Hang in there. Some of you guys are going, I just got saved. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I'm studying Christian calculus on Sunday morning. Well, we're being true to the word. We're studying all of it, and that's just where we come, and this is what the Lord has for you. Hang in there. But in Revelation chapter 7... Verse 9, you get to see yourself here in the Bible. You ready? After these things I looked, and behold, there you are, a great multitude. You're in there. Which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, just like in 
the Gospel of John, chapter 12, and that event's talked about. And crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There it is. Salvation has come. And all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, now here's the words to the song. You guys better learn the words or you're going to be up there feeling pretty foolish, starting humming along, you know. Learn the words. Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So I, we, we got the lyrics. We just don't have the, the beat yet. But uh, I'm sure that you'll be able to move right along once you get the, the song memorized. Uh, but of course, as uh, we're going to learn tonight in Jeremiah, it's going to be in Hebrew. So that's a whole nother one. But uh, the Lord's going to help you out with that one. But just start in English. And so on that Palm Sunday, if you would, we're going to see it as there Jesus comes to the eastern gate of Israel. And it's, it's so funny, the eastern gate has been boarded up. <laughs> by the Muslims, concreted in, giant, massive wall, probably about the size of this uh, gymnasium, thick, with just total concrete. They have buried the Muslim in front of the Eastern Gate, so the Messiah can't get past, you know, all the dead Muslim people. Oh, I can't come into Eastern Gate. And oh, it's all concreted. Well, I guess I'll just have to go to another gate. Like, that's going to stop Jesus. I don't think so. One, all those dead people are going to be gone. They're going to already be judged. But besides that, uh, there's not any concrete thick enough to keep Jesus out. He's coming through that eastern gate, and you're going to be right there worshiping. And the Lord makes it very clear that God is going to govern this world, and there's only going to be peace. And if anybody bucks the system, the Lord is not going to give them any room. He's going to come down on them and hard. Look at Psalm chapter 2. This is a psalm describing how Jesus is going to rule the world as the, as the great conqueror and how he's going to deal with other nations that are not treating Israel right, uh, even in that millennial reign, if there's any pride or anything that comes up. And he says in Psalms 2, why do the nations rage and peoples plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Now this was also quoted in Acts, but it's actually referring to this millennial reign because notice in verse 4, he who sets in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. There it is. This is the picture, again, going back into Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 11. We can't go into all of them. He's sitting there on the holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations, the Gentiles, the people of all the world, for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, that godly reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. In other words, show homage, show respect, and you, shall, you will perish in the way. His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So there's the picture again of the rod of iron breaking uh, the clay pots. I mean, just picture a clay pot like you buy down here in Mexico. Uh, you know, the big clay pots. Take a, a metal a metal rod and just imagine hitting the top of that what would happen to that pot 
That's the way the Lord's going to deal with people in the millennial reign who don't reverence the children of Israel and don't show complete submission unto Jesus Christ in that time. He's not going to put up with it. He's going to rule. Also, remember in Jeremiah 23, turn there if you would, and let's look at our just, righteous Lord. We looked at this passage twice, actually, as we looked at the branch of the Lord. And here it is again. Now you see it in its full fulfillment in Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. Again, from the lineage of Judah, the lineage of David, a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will be, dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called Yahweh Tidzkanu, or the Lord our righteousness. And so there it is, guys. Our Lord is going to rule and reign. He's going to come in. The first part of this was fulfilled in the triumphal entry. Jesus coming as the first suffering servant. But next time he comes, he's not coming as a suffering servant, but he's going to come as a glorious conquering king. And as he rides upon the colt, you'll be there to wave the palm branches and to praise him who is worthy of all worship and praise. Well, back in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10, he goes on to say, And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. In other words, you're not going to need implements of war anymore because God is going to fight for you. The battle bow shall be cut off. He, he, the Messiah, Jesus, shall speak peace to the Gentiles, to the nations. The word nations in the Hebrew is the same word heathen. It's the same word Gentiles. I'm going to be speaking shalom, healing to all the Gentiles. There we are included again. We're adopted into the household of God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are also our grandparents by faith in Jesus Christ. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from river to, notice, the ends of the earth. When Jesus comes to rule and reign, he's going to cover the entire earth. Remember Daniel? Turn back there, if you would, to the left, just a few pages to Daniel chapter 2. Remember there the, the statue of the head of gold and the chest of silver and the stomach of brass and the legs of iron and then finally the feet of iron and clay representing the four world-ruling kingdoms. More importantly describing the Antichrist kingdom and the spirit of those of the Babylonian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Persian Empire, and the Roman Empire. And in those last days, as the Antichrist sort of brings all those demonic spirits together and that and that those kingdoms and the, the different aspects of those kingdoms. But notice what happens there in Daniel chapter two, verse thirty four and thirty five. He says to Nebuchadnezzar, telling him his dream you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were crushed together. The whole Antichrist demonic spiritual kingdom and physical kingdom is crushed and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. Now listen to this. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and what? Filled the whole earth. 
And then he repeats it in verse 45, Daniel chapter 2, verse 45, as he's now giving the explanation of this. He says, now inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and the interpretation is sure. It's an absolute definite, no matter how many battles we may be losing along the way, the war is won. And Jesus Christ is one day going to come and it's going to be his spirit, not satanic spirit, not demonic man spirit, not the demonic homosexual spirits of this age and the lying spirits and all the other demonic teachings of the doctrines in these last days. But it's going to be the spirit of the living God that's going to permeate the entire world to the very ends of the earth. Well, there in verse 11, back in Zechariah chapter 9. Now again, he's going to look at a dual fulfillment of the conquering of the kingdoms of Greece and the conquering of the Antichrist and that spirit of Greece. And so in verse 11, he says, As you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. In those days, they often dug cisterns, and when they were done, then they would find they would have a hole in them, so they have mud in them, but they were worthless, but they were a, a nice place to put people if you wanted to uh, imprison them. And, and he's basically saying, come out of the waterless pit, referring to Babylon and the other countries where the children of Israel have been. Remember, this is a small remnant back in Israel at this time. Only 50,000 people came with Zerubbabel. The millions of Jews said, hey, we're living a great economical life over here in Babylon or in Egypt and the various places they were scattered. And he's saying, leave those waterless pits. Come back. We have a covenant, referring to the covenant Abraham, uh, Isaac and Jacob, also the covenant with Moses, also the covenant with the priesthood and offering sacrifices. God says, hey, we have something going here. Come out of those waterless pits. Let's get back here. Return to the stronghold, referring no doubt uh, to Jerusalem, but really unto the Messiah Jesus in its complete fulfillment. You prisoners of hope, even today I declare that I will restore double to you. For I have bent Judah my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion. So Judah, the um, southern kingdom, Ephraim, uh, which was the larger of the ten tribes, referring to the northern kingdom, I'm going to raise them up again, make them all one people, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a mighty man. Now this word, O Greece, it, it can indeed mean Greece, but it's, a, it's the word Yavan in the Hebrew, which also can mean a distant, unknown people. Uh, and it's sort of a derogatory term saying a bunch of nobody people. And uh, we see that used in Genesis chapter 10 and 1 Chronicles chapter 1 and Isaiah 66. But um, he's, he's saying here, I'm going to make you like a sword of the mighty man. And uh, the Greek empire... Uh, under Alexander, he died shortly after he conquered the world, was split into four different kingdoms. And those four different kingdoms, you have one of Turkey and Europe, and then one of Egypt and one of Syria. And the Egyptian one called the Ptolemies, and the Syrians called the Seleucians. And of that Seleucian empire, 
through the ages, it kept being passed down. These four kingdoms warred with each other. In particular, the Seleucians and the Ptolemies hated each other. But what's in between Syria and Egypt? Israel. And so what you had is the time you come down to uh, around 164, 170, 164 in there, B.C., you have a guy raising up by the name of Antiochus of Epiphanes. And as they were in this battle back and forth, again, in the book of Daniel, we go into great detail into this, but he was going down to fight at this point. Rome was beginning to, to rise in power. They actually met... Uh, Rome, they didn't realize they had this incredible navy, and Ptolemy, or excuse me, Antiochus of Epiphanes goes down, meets the Roman general, and he basically says, um, are we going to fight or not? And Antiochus realized there's no way we can win. But the news got back to Israel that Antiochus not only had gone into a battle with Romans, but had lost and been killed. And so back in Jerusalem, they're having this party because Antiochus had been radically persecuting them. They had turned Israel into this major battleground. When Antiochus was passing by, going back to Syria, he said, what's going on? Hey, they're rejoicing over the fact that you're dead. And he wasn't very happy with that. He came down and he slaughtered, in one time, 100,000 Jews. Then he went and took a pig and slaughtered it in the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest was to go once a year, set up the statue of Jupiter killed the priest that he could find and then started his own priesthood with his own type of religion using some of the Jewish stuff with his own religion. This was all a type of what the Antichrist would do in part but setting himself up in the end times. What God did is he raised up a guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus. Now between the Old Testament and the New Testament is a 400 year period and there are some historical books. We do not take them as inspired scriptures of God, as the Catholic Church does. They added it to their Bible uh, around 1500 uh, after the Council of Trent. But that's a whole other story. But we do see it as history. And in there is the, is the book of Maccabees that talk about uh, Judas the Hammer, is what they call them. And through guerrilla warfare tactics, he weakened the Seleucid Empire and eventually conquered. And you guys remember that story where... Now they, they got the Seleucids out of their country. They come into Jerusalem. They try to rededicate the temple, and they discover they only have enough oil for a day that's dedicated oil. It takes eight days for a priest to consecrate the oil. But they went ahead and took the oil they had. They put it into the giant menorah they had, and it started burning. And instead of going out in a day, it kept burning, and it kept burning. And the oil lasted eight days. And then the new oil came. And thus they called that the Feast of Lights or the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah. And that's where the Jews get the, um, that festival right around our Christmas time called Hanukkah, uh, commemorating the, the oil kept burning supernaturally uh, until the new oil had been dedicated. And here he goes on now describing that and at the same time describing Jesus Christ conquering of the Antichrist at the end of the tribulation period. So some of it applies to both and some of it applies only to Jesus. Then the Lord will be seen over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning and the Lord God will blow the trumpet and go with whirlwinds from the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall devour us subdue uh, with sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if with wine. They shall be filled with blood like basins or sacrificial basins. God's going to pour them out like a sacrifice, like the corners of the altar. 
The Lord their God shall save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they shall be like the jewels of a crown, lifted like the banner over his land. For how great is its goodness. Now that also could be translated, great is his goodness, depending on the text. And I think that's the better text to use. How great is his goodness. How great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive, and new wine the young women. So here he gives that time period where he's saying, I'm going to bring the victory. I'm going to be the one that's going to fight for you. And God, at the end of the tribulation period, is going to wipe out the Antichrist. All the kingdoms of the world are going to come together there uh, in the Jezreel Valley of Israel today where more battles have been fought than any other place on planet Earth to the date. All the world's going to be there for a final battle known as the Battle of Armageddon. And the Lord's going to finish off the world at that point. And then he's going to go down to the rock city of Petra, about 90 miles south, a little bit east of, of Jerusalem. He's going to go down there and take the children of Israel out of the rock city of Petra, where he has protected them in the land of Jordan. And he's going to bring them up to the new Jerusalem. Now, this is the, the picture in part. So we come to chapter 10, and now he says, ask the Lord. So here's how you respond to all of this information. You say, what information? Let me repeat it again. Chapter 9, verse 1. No, I won't do that. But he says, now that you got this picture, he says, now for you, how do you respond? Ask the Lord for the rain in the time of the latter rain. The Lord will make flashing clouds. He will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. Now, you're, this is obviously something literally they dealt with. When they were in the land of Egypt, they had an uh, irrigation system set up out of the Nile, and they had a way of doing it. They had pumps that they would pump with their foot, bring the pump the water out of the Nile, and there they would water the fields, and that's the way they did it. But God said, when you come into the promised land, it's going to be different. As a matter of fact, the land of Israel is very interesting because there's basically only two bodies of water. One of them polluted the, the, the Dead Sea, but the other is the Sea of Galilee, which is a small lake. And it's only in one little corner of Israel. So the majority of the Israel, especially if you look at the 300,000 square miles that Israel should have taken, they've only had 10% of that uh, under King David and King Solomon. But if you look at that, even especially if they had the entire promised land, all they have is the Lake of Galilee. How in the world can they make the entire country um, as God says, it'll all bud like a rose. Now, to this day, Israel, 80% of Europe's citrus comes from Israel. Israel's about the size of Southern California. 30% of its flowers come from Israel. But how does it work? God said, it's, it, it, there's, you're not going to have a choice. You're going to have to have my blessing upon you to make it work. You first need the former rains, which is uh, right around November time, anywhere from end of September uh, through November. And then you have the latter rains, which start at the end of February, uh, and then anywhere up to the beginning of April, exactly like here in Southern California, the way we have the rains. But there, they have a lot more portions of rain, depending on what part of the country. But he says, you're going to need that. And God says, as long as you're walking in obedience, you're going to have the former rain, you're going to have the latter rain, and you're not going to have to sweat it and pump it up and get this elaborate uh, aqueduct system all working and everything. I'm going to just, you can just plant the seed and take back and rest. I'm going to do it for you. That's the blessing. 
But if you don't walk in obedience, I'm going to seal up the heavens like iron, God says. And you'll die. You won't be able to stay in the land. And so it was a wonderful sort of self-mechanism, built-in system to say, here's a motivation to obey God. <laughs> here's, a, here's a, I mean, you know, every couple times a year, there's sort of, have to go through the litmus test. Are we right with God or not? Well, how are we going to know? Are we going to get rain? Without the rain, we're dead. And so this is the way the Lord worked with the children of Israel. Now, what's interesting about this is Jesus tells us that when you see the signs of the times coming, earthquakes in various places. This year, had a rather large earthquake back in Alabama and Tennessee and so forth. It's always funny because I used to live back there. And they used to say, you can't go live out in California. Those earthquakes, man, they'll kill you. Well, so, you know, tornadoes, we can always go down in the cellar if there's a tornado coming, you know. But earthquakes, oh, yeah, those are scary things. But now they have them back there. So now they might as well move to California. But uh, we see them throughout the world. It's, it's a constant thing. It's, it's something that's growing in intensity. Pestilence. And wars and rumors. Well, I'm not going to go into the whole thing. The days will be a Sodom and Gomorrah. Permea permeation of homosexuality throughout the world. We see that now. The days will be as Noah, giving and taking in marriage. People devaluing marriage and dumping this person, marrying that person. And we see that happening in the world today. He said, when you see it, it's like a fig tree. When the leaves are coming, the fruit is going to be right behind it. When, at that point, is when the latter rain comes to saturate the plants, to give them the final boost of water they need, that they might have a good harvest. Now what I find interesting about this is when the day of Pentecost came, and they, 120 people in the upper room that were seeking after God, they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, cloven tongues of fire came. Here they described it as flashing clouds of lightning. You could say lightning, or also it's a description of the kind of glory of God. And the people showed up and they said, what meaneth this? And then, what did he do? Turn over, if you would, to Acts chapter 2 and, and notice what he did. He quoted out of the book of Joel. And in Acts chapter 2, after he convinces them they're not all drunk, he says to them, starting in verse 17, and this is what Joel said, it shall come to pass in the last days. Now, what was his description at that point? Jesus Christ raising from the dead start, started the clock of the last days. Says the Lord, God, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. All believers are going to be equally treated in the empowering of God's spirit. You're not going to have one prophet, Moses, and everybody else not anointed. Everybody's going to be anointed. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see vision. Your old men shall... Dream dreams, and on my men servant, on my maid servant, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above, the signs in the earth beneath. Now you say, hold it. This is describing the tribulation period. That's right. Then to verse 18, notice, and they shall prophesy. And now verse 19 to 21 is describing the tribulation period. And you say, why didn't Peter just stop after verse 18? Because that's all that applied to his message. Why did he go on in verse 19 to 21 describing the tribulation period? Because he's telling us that the last days start with Jesus Christ raising from the dead, but that experience of Pentecost is to be continued on 
until the end of the tribulation period. He's giving you a classification of time. And sure enough, in the tribulation period, we see 144,000, uh, 12,000 from each tribe anointed uh, Jewish evangelists. And that's a whole other thing we're not going to go into. But the point is, is that that was the former reigns. The day of Pentecost was that former reign. And now as we are coming to the end days, I believe that right here in the book of Zechariah is talking about that latter rain that God now once again wants to pour upon his church. I believe in these last days, look there at 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1, it says this, if you didn't get there just listen, it says, now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith having given heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. And he goes on describing it. In the last days, there's going to be, the Spirit expressly says, emphatically says, there is going to be an empowering of the demonic realm in the last days like never before. And even people that are believing in Jesus, but they only have a half-hearted commitment, they're going to be swayed by these doctrines of demons and being taken away, and their minds are going to be seared so confident that this new doctrine they have is right. Recently, with the Episcopal Church and, and their accepting of the homosexual, and they've been doing that for a long time, but they've upped it a ante uh, in what they've done and basically saying, uh, not only... It's homosexuality not a sin. It's a wonderful thing. And we as homosexuals are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, which <laughs> that's going to be a whole separate judgment in and of itself, I think, to uh, sway people into such a false doctrine. Uh, and not only a false doctrine, but a demonic doctrine. But nevertheless, there's going to also be, I believe, another empowering of God's church of the Holy Spirit. The latter reigns. Now, if you look at it, when Jesus talks about the end times, whether it's Luke 21 or Matthew 24, how does he end each time talking about the last days? You, therefore, watch and pray. Each time he says, when you see the end times, this is for you, the church, to say, this is a time for me to not just pray, but to begin to seek the face of God and to do it with intensity. An interesting parable Jesus taught in Luke chapter 18, where he said, I'm going to tell you a parable so it'll help you to pray and not lose heart in your praying. So Jesus understands the nature of prayer. It is something that often God draws us out. We ask and keep on asking and keep on asking, keep on asking, seek, keep on seeking, keep on seeking, knock, keep on knocking, and the Lord draws it out. Even though it's heavy upon our heart, He doesn't bring an immediate answer to our prayer. He draws us out in that time of prayer. And there He tells a parable about a widow who needs help, but the judge doesn't fear God, doesn't respect man, but because she keeps coming to Him, finally He says, I haven't changed, I'm the same, but I'm going to give it to you so you'll leave me alone. And Jesus then ends that parable in Luke 18 by saying this. How much more will God bring justice about for his elect who cry to him, listen, day and night. That's some intense praying. But this is the conclusion of that parable. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? 
Why? What's that have, how did that whole thing tie in? The definition of the Lord, of His church, walking in faith, walking in obedience, is when He comes, He finds a church in prayer. And this is why I find it so significant after he rides in upon the donkey, he goes and he says, you didn't know this your day. The very next thing he does in Luke chapter, um, whatever that was, 19, I think, he goes in and he cleanses the temple and said, my house is a house of prayer. And this is something that I've said and I continue to say. That God's church, we are his church and this building is his church this morning. Our new building will be that at whatever point when we gather together with God's people, we need to have it within, for lack of a better word, our spiritual duties to be seeking the face of God, not a prayer, but a seeking the face of God. Now this is why I, again, want to make this point so emphatically this morning. Is when we look in the Bible, when we see the fulfillment of God's word coming, the people of faith didn't just say, well, Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. If the Lord's going to come back now, the Lord's going to come back now. What can I do about it? Hey, you know, I'm living the best I can. So, say la vie, what happens, happens. We never find that attitude. Jesus said, go back and tarry and wait for the promise. Remember the promise of the Father I told you about? John baptized you with water. I'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Go back and get intense in prayer. You don't see these guys in the upper room going, well, if we're going to get the promise of the Father, we're going to get the promise of the Father. If we don't get the promise of the Father, we don't get the promise. What can I do about this? You know, Jesus said he's going to give it to us. He's going to give it to us. So let's just kick back and have a big pile up here in the upper room and, and wait for the blessing. That wasn't their attitude. Nor was it the attitude of Daniel. Remember in Daniel chapter 9, when he was reading Jeremiah, he said, 70 years. And boy, Daniel flipped out, 70 years. He started seeking the face of God in chapter 9 and chapter 10. And the Lord says, oh, Daniel, beloved of the Lord. And he praises him for his intense praying. And Daniel was praying for the 70 years to be from the first deportation, 605 B.C. Which is funny because the portion of Jeremiah he was reading, because one portion of Jeremiah does point out, it's from the children of Israel leaving the land. But if you read all the accounts of Jeremiah, he's talking about the 70 years really not being the first deportation, but the destruction of Jerusalem and, uh, in particular, the temple, which wasn't for 19 years later in 586 B.C. But nevertheless, Daniel sought the Lord and God honored that 70-year period from 605 and God honored it. However, if you study it out, from 586 the, when the temple was destroyed to when the temple was built in 516 BC, it was 70 years from the temple being destroyed till the temple was rebuilt, which was the real date that the Lord had said. But yet... Even there, we see the Lord saying, I'll go ahead and take you right now, back right now because of your faith. In comparison, in comparison, here's Moses, 40 years old, saying, man, I'm the king's son. I've had all this power. A man, uh, Acts 7, says, mighty in word, mighty in speech. I'm going to go deliver the children of Israel by his own strength. Now, if you calculate out, it's on the 390-year point when Moses does that. But God sends Moses 40 years into the wilderness. He's broken man. He finally sees the burning bush. God says, you're the man. Go back. And he says, I can't even talk. What do you mean, you know? He's a stubborn fellow. After 40 years, at 80 years old, he's still stubborn. God can barely work with him then. But when was it at that point? It was 430 years. 
When in reality, God told Abraham in Genesis 15, for four generations they shall be in the land. Now, it didn't mean not, it couldn't be more than that, but it was going to be at least that. But I believe at that age 40, when Moses realized, hey, this is God's calling upon my life, instead of him in the works of his flesh going out to try to deliver the children of Israel, if he would have started seeking the face of God, and after 10 years of seeking the face of God there in Egypt as Pharaoh's son, at that 400-year mark, I believe to the day, the children of Israel would have been out of the land. And if you look at it, it was those last 30 years that were brutal on the children of Israel. How does this work? It works this way. We see the fig tree, the signs of the time. Look at the news. Israel, Babylon, the European common market, which is a revival of the Roman Empire, homosexuality, pestilence, famine. It's, it's, it's almost like the newscast said, okay, how does the newscast compare with Matthew 24 today? Did we get all the points in? That's the way the newspaper reads. It's like try to find an article in the newspaper that doesn't apply to end times. It's absolutely amazing. You'd have to be deaf, dumb, and blind to not see that we are in the last moments of the last days. And what is to be our response? Ask the Lord in those days for the latter rains. We need to be watching and praying, asking for a special outpouring of God's power, His grace. It says in the last days it would be an apostasia, a falling away. Luke 21, he says, don't get caught up with drunkenness, the cares of this life. In other words, get you so busy and so off track. It's like, I'd like to stop and pray at the church, but I'm so busy. I got, I got to do this, I got that, I got work and school and this and that. And God says, stop. We're in the last days. I'm changing your priorities. Number one, make my house a house of prayer. Teaching is great. What we're doing right now is absolutely essential. It's also a command of the Lord, but it's not the most important meeting that our church is having this week. I believe at this point, and it could be any time, but it just so happens that the way it works out in the system of our church, the time that we have chosen is Sunday nights. Sunday night is when we gather together, we have a Bible study, but the emphasis is to spend a time in prayer. We worship, we're washing the word, and then we seek the Lord for an hour. Jesus said, can you not tarry an hour with me? And I encourage you as a pastor, as a friend, as I've said these last few weeks, and I can only encourage you from the depths of the love of my heart, in these last days, change your schedule, change what it takes. Some of you can't, I understand that, and there's other prayer meetings going on throughout the week. I don't think as key and as essential as the Sunday night, but there's other prayer meetings going on, which are great. But to really make that a point in your life and your family, I, I, I just want you there when the Holy Spirit falls. I want you there when the empowering of God comes. I don't want you showing up on Tuesday or Wednesday going, now what happened Sunday night? What meaneth this? <laughs> Be there, man. Be there in a part of what the Lord is doing. Well, the rest of chapter 10 is pretty self-explanatory. And let's read it here and I'll make a couple of comments. Of Zechariah. For the idols speak delusions. Again, I think this is referring to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through uh, 3 there. The diviners envision lies and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, the people win their way like sheep. They are in trouble because there is no shepherd. 
It blows my mind how hungry people are spiritually right now. I've seen on the advertisements on the TV that there's one, I think it's called Beyond or something. And it's where, you know, some guy's like, Margaret, is there Margaret? Margaret, yeah, you know. Are you Margaret? No, but I have a great-great-grandmother on my mother's father's side who was a neighbor of somebody whose name was Margaret. Yeah, you're the one, you know. I see an Esther, an Ellen, a, a Betty. Betty, Betty, yeah, I used to have a neighbor called Betty. Oh, she's your guardian in this life. She died if you, you know. Oh, they start crying. I'm like going, this is stupid. The guy's a moron, and they're twice the moron listening to him. But it, it grieves my heart that these people are so spiritually hungry they're willing to take a sponge out of the toilet, wipe the doo-doo off it, and squeeze a drop of urine on their mouth because they're so thirsty. That's what it looks like to me. They are that hungry. They are that thirsty that they'll go through whatever sewage they have to to try to get some little drop of something supernatural. And here they're, they're willing to believe the lies. They're willing to listen to these diviners. They're in such trouble because they don't have shepherds. Jesus says, we're the light of the world. Be a light. Shine brightly. Don't put your light under a bushel. Shine the light. Speak the word at the gas pumps, in the grocery stores, in the restaurants, at school, in your neighborhood. Let it be known about Jesus. My anger is kindled, God said, against the shepherds. Why? They're not teaching the people. In Jeremiah 3.15, shepherds after his own heart, leading the people with knowledge and understanding, like we're doing right here this morning. And San Diego probably has more teaching churches than most cities. There's a lot of people in the world that don't have this. I will punish the goat herders, those who are leading the goats, as well as the shepherds. For the Lord of hosts will visit his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them as his royal horse in the battle. From him comes the cornerstone. That's Jesus, guys. From him the tent peg, those who are securing things, expanding things, is Jesus. From him is the battle bow. He is the one who fights for us. From him every ruler together. Everybody is under him. Everybody's in power because he allows it. And, and he is the power over all powers. They shall be like mighty men who tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. They shall fight because of the Lord is with them. And the riders on horses shall be put to shame which was the pagans, Antiochus of Epiphanes. He had a huge uh, Calvary. Israel was never allowed a Calvary. They, the Lord said they were to hamstring the horses and not allow them to have chariots and horsemen. God would be their strength. I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. Joseph was the father of Ephraim, again referring to the northern part of Israel. I will bring them back because I have mercy on them. They shall be as though I had not cast them aside, for I am the Lord their God. I will hear them. Those of Ephraim shall be like the mighty man, and their hearts shall rejoice as if with wine. Yes, their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. This is referring to those Jews coming out of Petra, seeing the salvation that Jesus is bringing. I will whistle for them. Shepherds often do that for the sheep, have a certain call, and only their sheep know it. And they'll gather them, for I will redeem them, buy them out of their bondage, and they shall increase as they once increased. We have a picture in the prophets where Jesus goes down like a shepherd, and all the children of Israel come out of the rock city of Petra like sheep following him. I will sow them or scatter them amongst the people, and they shall remember me in far countries. We, as the believers, are also counted as Jews who are going to come with the Lord, and we're going to be priests and kings unto our God. And they shall live together with their children, and they shall return, and I also will bring them back from the land of Egypt, 
Gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no more room is found for them. He shall pass through the sea with affliction, strike the waves of the sea. All the depths of the river will dry up. Then the pride of Assyria shall be brought down, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. So I will strengthen them. Them who? Israel? No. Egypt and Assyria. Write this down. We don't have time to look it up today. But read Isaiah chapter 19, verses 18 through 25. God says that Egypt and Assyria are three with Israel. He says, Egypt is my people, Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance. Them, I'm going to strengthen them, and they shall walk up and down in his name, says the Lord. God loves the Arab countries. And God sees Israel along with Egypt, Assyria, basically encompass the whole Arab nations as his people. Satan has brought them into the darkness of that demonic religion of Islam. It's a very depressing religion, very violent religion. He's brought them into this blindness, but one day God is going to bring a great salvation. As I read Isaiah 19, it looks like that revival, especially the one in Egypt, happens before the coming of the Lord. So I got my eye on Egypt to see if God might bring a great revival there in the very near future, as well as through the Arab, other Arab countries. And again, Babylon's very much in the news right now. Well, Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. And there's a lot there, but I know that by your grace, God, that you can take the seeds that need to be sown into our hearts today, the little nuggets of gold that you have for us this day, that you would speak them deep into our heart. And Lord, in particular, in these last days, that you would see us coming into your house saying, ah, nothing needs to be turned over, nothing needs to be ran out. You go, ah, this is the way I wanted it, my house, a house of prayer. And when you come to earth, you do find those in faith, us, your church, crying out to you night and day. Lord, I ask that you would make us a people of prayer, that we would move forward on our knees, that we'd be a people of faith, crying out to you, not losing heart but waiting upon you to do great and mighty things amongst us. And I do ask now this day that your kingdom would come, your will would be done, your glory would be manifest. Let your word just continue to soak deep and deep and deeper into our hearts. In Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you all.